Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Welcome back to the Shema Podcast. I'm going to tell you a little something about myself, something about my nature. I've always been very rebellious. You know, my father taught me early on to never do something just because all the other kids are doing it. You know, if all the other kids were jumping off a bridge, he would tell me, would you do the same thing? And he was trying to encourage me to have a little more critical thinking with just going with the flow. I know he was trying to combat the potential situation of maybe drugs being introduced to me at a young age, all those type things, but I took it to heart. He trained me to always battle conventional norms, and that backfired with my Judaism early on because they were having me sit around a Passover Seder table, and we all agree that the story we're about to tell did not actually happen. So, of course, taking that mindset the way I was brought up, I said, so why are we doing this? And as soon as I was old enough and living on my own, I stopped participating in a Passover Seder. But one of the things I've learned and and love and appreciate about Judaism is that there's nothing we do that is nonsensical. When you look at all the, the secular holidays, there's really not any meaning behind them. I mean, initially, maybe yes. But I know like on 4th of July... I don't know anyone who sits and reads the Declaration of Independence, contemplates its meaning, pontificates about it, the impact it's had on their life and our nation. All I experienced was people trying to determine who's hosting the poolside barbecue, who's bringing the beer, and who's bringing the fireworks. You know, Thanksgiving. Never seen a lot of contemplation about the origins of that secular holiday, the appreciation we should have as a result, the gratitude. It's get all your family together, eat turkey and a bunch of food till you are bloated, drink too much, argue about politics, and then everyone unbuckles a notch on their belt and goes, sits down on the couch and watches football. You know, growing up in my 20s, I just thought this was a total waste of time. Why shut down the markets? my productivity for these nonsensical activities. But the thing about what we do as Jews is everything has such meaning to it. And while I have been learning how to observe mitzvot, a lot of it doesn't make sense. I didn't understand. I still don't understand many things. However, I don't have a rebellious nature about it because I I know that Torah comes from God, that everything in there is true. And so I would say that one of the things that we can get caught up in that's a huge mistake is to say and draw conclusions that mitzvot observance and the halacha, which we're going to be talking about more, the laws that govern everything we do as Jews, doesn't make sense. It may not make sense to you, but the way to approach it is it doesn't make sense because we don't understand it. You know, if I put on a white lab coat, went down to MD Anderson Cancer Center, walked into a room with a bunch of oncologists who were 
evaluating various patients that they were treating and talking about the diagnosis and the prognosis for these particular patients. And I chimed in and said, you guys are totally wrong. That's not what we should do. And they looked over at me and said, well, what do you suggest? I was like, I think this guy just needs a nice steak and a nice glass of scotch. And they would say, well, we, we haven't seen this study. Where did this come from? It's like, I, I, I didn't read a study. I just know I feel awesome after a good steak and a nice glass of scotch. And they probably inquire, where'd you go to medical school? It's like, I, I never went to medical school. I barely passed biology and undergraduate in college. And they would, of course, be extremely offended. They would think I was a total fool and an idiot because they had dedicated their entire lives to studying everything about the human anatomy, going on to specialize in the area of oncology and Before they started to innovate any ideas on their own, they would have studied everything that had come before them. And it's the same thing with us. If we don't understand why we do something, it is because we don't understand it. You know, many questions come up for me, like we say brakas on food. And I learned early on that there's a special blessing when we eat something that grows from the ground, when we eat something that grows from a tree, when we eat grain products or bread or wine or other types of food. There's a specific blessing we say prior to eating that food. And then there's likewise a certain blessings we say after certain types of food. We say it's certain blessing after we eat a bread meal. We have grain or the seven species or wine. There's a certain after dinner blessing. If it's other categories, there's another blessing we say after we're done eating. But why? You know, I thought originally that the whole goal of saying these blessings was to improve our gratitude, which is something we're all lacking. And we're all hardwired to take things for granted. And that's why God wanted us to thank him for the food we are about to eat and thank him again after we've been satiated by that food. And that seemed like such a noble cause. I read the book, The Garden of Gratitude, and it's something we're, we're all plagued with. You know, we've all had like a very bad day. People will describe to me their bad days, being stuck in traffic, going into the office, spilling coffee on their shirt, a bad encounter with a colleague from work, coming home, having a, something go wrong with one of their kids. One thing after another, horrible day. Can't you understand, Dan? It was such a horrible day. However, if you had another individual who lost their sight at a young age, goes in to see the doctor and the doctor said, I have an outpatient surgery now that can correct your vision. He gets the procedure. The next morning he wakes up. He can now see. And then he then goes on to have the exact same day that was your bad day. That would have been the best day in his life. So I sort of understood like we take things for granted by nature. But if that is the case, if all we're trying to do is thank God and have gratitude for everything we have in our life, then why can't I just say, thank you, God, for this grape. Thank you, God, for this steak. Thank you, God, for this. Thank you for giving me that food. Why can't I speak from the heart? Why are all the prayers so structured? Can't I just come in? Wouldn't I have more kavanah, more intent, if I just said my own prayers? And there's all these nuances of halakha and laws And I know there's a very good reason for them. And I know it's an area that I have to spend a lot of time focusing on. It's an area that I have to improve on. 
And it's one of the areas of study that I'm going to become very focused on and begin regular study with. I wanted to start from the top down, the macro view. Why is it that we do this? Why do we have this myriad of laws? And the timing worked out perfect because I had the amazing fortune of having Rabbi Yokov Cohen stay with me over this last week. And I've been barraging him with questions the entire time and learning from him. So I asked him if he would do a podcast episode to talk about the very top level, spiritual level, what is what are we actually accomplishing by learning halacha and following it and this myriad of laws and complexities around them. So thank you, Rabbi Cohen, for being on the Shmal Podcast and sharing your insights and your amazing wisdom into this subject. Pleasure to be here, Dan. So start with the big picture. Why did God create the world to where we now have to have all these different laws governing all these unique situations? So you really have to start off with the first law that was given, ever. So we have to go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they had one directive that they had to do, which was, don't eat from that tree. That was their only law, basically. And what happened as a result of that, we have to understand, what was the tree of knowledge of good and evil? So the interesting thing is, notice how the name is called, tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's not just the tree of knowledge of evil. It's tree of knowledge of good and evil. So the idea really here is, This tree creates what we call confusion. Before Adam and Eve ate from that tree, everything was pretty straightforward. Meaning, anything that was sweet was good, and anything that was bitter was bad. Kind of clear. And so what happened was, it was quite clear, and of course, everything that happened in the Garden of Eden with the serpent and Eve. And when she talked to the servant, she says, I'm not allowed to eat the tree or nor touch it. So she added something there. But then the serpent pushed her up against the tree and says, you're still alive. So just like I pushed you against the tree and you're still alive. So you can eat from the tree. And that's where it started. Let me ask you a question, Rabbi. So I know that There's always been this process of putting fences around the Torah to guardrail us from making mistakes. Yes. So that was Adam's reason. He he wanted to do a safeguard, and therefore he put the safeguard, the fence, saying, don't touch it. You know, don't touch it. Now, the problem is he did not distinguish clearly that God's command was don't eat it. I want to tell you a fence not to touch it. That was my point, was that it, that's why it's important, is it not, to make sure we understand what is a fence and why it's there. Absolutely. And we do adhere to all the fences because there's even the reason that the rabbis give, there's much more deeper reasons that we are not aware of. And so, therefore, what happened was she ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Once she ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, therefore, not everything was sweet was good for you, and not everything was bitter was bad for you, as we see in this world. 
You could eat a half a gallon of ice cream. I had a whole challenge with my friends. To, if we can pound down a half gallon each. They finished theirs. I didn't finish mine. They were sick. And I was like, I'm okay. Well, let's go to the arcade, guys. So, so the idea here is not everything was sweet is good and not everything is bitter is bad. So therefore, there's mass confusion in the world and in terms of our activities and in terms of what we should do. Okay? So that's where the beginning started. Adam then was given subsequently seven mitzvahs to do. Basically, you know, not to curse God. Those are called the seven Noahide laws. They're called a Noahide from Noah only because Noah got the final one, the seventh. But Adam was really commanded six laws. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't curse God, set up courts. And Noah was commanded, cannot eat flesh from a living animal. Because there was no eating animals prior to Noah, correct? Adam could eat a roadkill. If he, you know, if it died of its own reason, he could technically eat it. But you cannot slaughter for the sake of eating the animal. Okay. It's a whole other topic in terms of elevating the sparks, okay. which is really what happened. When Adam ate from the tree of knowledge, Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, so all of the sparks went shattering all over the world. That's the spiritual understanding of it. His soul went flying all over the world into these various sparks, which basically embedded themselves in the physicality that we experience today in the world. And then it became incumbent upon mankind to gather those holy sparks. And so every time you eat something, ingest something, use something, wear something, you are basically elevating the holy sparks that are within that piece of food, garment, car, house, or whatever. Can you explain a little more? I've always heard this term about sparks and raising the sparks, but can you elaborate a little more on what exactly that? So let's call it the experience of godliness within a physical space. Within a physical act, is there godliness within that? And that's what the real reality in terms of the highest realm, why we were sent down here to this world with the mission of elevating this world and making it godly. So it was a vacated space, void of anything godliness. Actually, it was really more concealed, not that it wasn't there. And our goal now is to reveal the godliness in the physical realm. The angels couldn't do it because they, were, they knew they couldn't handle it. Only the people from a higher, only the souls from a higher realm, from the world, the realm, the dimension called creation, were able to come down here and deal with the stuff that goes down to this world. Angels could not either, right? Because you have to have a physical body in order to interact with this world. Correct. So it's a question in last week's Parsha, in Vayera, when Abraham welcomed the angels, was he, were they eating actually? Or were they not eating? Some yes. people say it was disappearing as it was going. They were giving the act as if it was eating outwardly. Of course, they weren't really eating the food. Don't ask me where the food went. So therefore, the holy sparks are the aspects of a physicality that we have a potential to elevate by bring, making it holy and bringing godliness into it. Okay. So let's say if you're eating just basic food, what is the motivation for you to eat that food? Is it because you're, you're just a hungry animal? Or no, you want to be strong and healthy to do good deeds. Let's just look at it real basic. 
Why are you eating that food? So when you're eating it with the right intentions in mind, you are elevating that food and ingesting that food and thinking good thoughts. As opposed to a person eats the food without good thoughts, without good intentions, so then we say that those holy sparks actually get embedded deeper into the realm of the husks. We'll call this world the world of the husks. That it gets deeper into the realm of the husks, and therefore you have to go and fetch it out, even if you have to come back in several lifetimes. You are taking something from a, a lower species. Look at the, earth, the earthly realm as being mineral, plant, animal, and then man. Just look at it simply like that. So anything lower than man would call, be called on a lower level. So therefore, when you ingest a plant or an animal, you are elevating those technically because you are ingesting them and they're becoming part of your body. And if you think good thoughts after you eat it, even maybe if you didn't even, even if you didn't even have the best of intentions when you were eating it, nevertheless, you're elevating the sparks of what you ate because you're using the energy, the fuel for good things. And that's where the mitzvah of saying these specific blessings after we eat come from. Yes, it's, a, it's very, very big. It, it, it goes into a spectrum of a lot of areas, but on the certain level area, according to the Kabbalists, yes, in that area. So saying blessings actually ignites the holy sparks that are within that food, and therefore you elevate it in a greater way, bring it to a higher place. So you answer my question that the, the blessings we, we say before we eat and after we eat are more than us just going into a mindset of gratitude. Yes. A mindset of gratitude is important because it's, we're all here. We're here for relationship, right? We're here to relate to God, have a relationship with God. We're here to express gratitude to God. So to recognize that. So that's very, very important. But on a more deeper level, the sparks are getting elevated. And they couldn't get elevated if, like what I suggested in my intro, we... I just said, thank you, God, for this food. Thank you for that food. Why does it have to be with these specific prayers on these types of foods? Why does that make a difference? Well, you know, because the real reason is because we fell out of what we understand a relationship with God is. It used to be there was never a prayer book. There was a time where before the men of the great assembly who put together the standard prayers, there was no book, really. Maybe there was the Shema, everybody knew it, but you know they would go out and they would have that relationship. They would have that dialogue and they would have that connection. But because of, we call the more distance, the more further away we got from Mount Sinai, the kind of like our ability to connect became vague or lost. So therefore the rabbis had to say, okay, we have to set a springboard at least to have a basic to make sure that we have the ability for people to have that connection. So therefore they instituted all of the prayers and the prayer books that we see in order to use it as a meditative springboard in order to reach to a higher level of connection. That makes sense. You know, when I started studying the Shimon Esrei, thinking of those 19 blessings that we say. I know if we didn't have those, the blessings I would have thought of wouldn't be near that lofty, and they probably wouldn't be about the Jewish people altogether. Who knows what they would be? So yes, we have to make sure that we're focused on a global redemption for, the, for mankind. 
and it's done in this way, and they instituted in this way, and they knew what they were doing, and they're unbelievable prayers and springboards, meditative springboards to get you to a higher plane of consciousness. But now going back to the Garden of Eden. Now, since everything became confused, that what did that mean? So I'm just going to quote you a little bit of Rabbi Nachman from Sichot Aran, a number 29. So here's how Rabbi Nachman, who you would think is the Hasidic movement on these guys who's just dancing and singing all day, that that's not true. The Rebbe constantly stressed for us the importance of study, the, to, of study of the codes of religious law. That means the halacha, the law. He emphasized this more than any other study. The most important thing he told his students, you must study Jewish law every day. Now why? So, so what is what we're getting to so this study is a great spiritual remedy because through sin, good and evil become mixed up. That means either you can look at the Garden of Eden, the good and the evil that we spoke about created confusion. Not everything is sweet is good for you and not everything is bitter like medicines are bad for you. Coffee, very good for me. Bitter, I, yes, but I like bitter. They say with age, there comes a taste for bitter. So in any case, things get mixed up through sin and good and evil become confused and you don't necessarily know what's right and what's wrong, what's good and bad. So a legal opinion, meaning to study the law, the Jewish law, for a clear separation between the valid and the invalid, the permitted and the forbidden, the pure and the impure. When you study the religious law, good is purified and once again separated from evil. So therefore, that's why it's a, it's a fix for the tree of knowledge of good and evil. To re, because everything became confused. We don't know anymore. That's why the tree is called good and evil, because you don't know anymore. So therefore, the Torah came and says, made it clear cut. The 613 mitzvahs in the Torah gave us clear connections, clear activities to be engaged in with all of their halachas specifically in order to make that re-separation of good and evil again. So therefore, anybody who's involved in halacha is involved in fixing the sin of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Does it make sense? Makes sense. You're saying that our job here is we walk into like a messy room and you have a job, like when you, when you go into a messy room, your job is to clean the room. And you got to separate the dirty clothes, go in the hamper, the clean clothes go here. And, and, you're, and you're separating the dirty from the clean. It's sort of the same thing. We come in this world, what is good and what is evil are all intertwined. And we're coming in here and we're just separating everything out. So it's almost as if, yes, we have the now the unique and great opportunity to affect that separation and affect that rectification and fix the world. As a neat freak, this is totally, I'm totally digging this. Right. So every time you learn a halacha, and then, and then not just learning the halacha, but every time you're actually performing the halacha, then you bring the Torah into that physical, physical time-space episode. Every time you do the right halacha, you perform it with your actions. In that space-time episode, you are totally elevating it in alignment with the Torah. So it results in a total rectification. That's why Rabbi Nachman was so emphatic on learning halacha. The Rebbe said 
that everyone must study the codes each day without fail. And if you're under duress and have no time, you may study any law in the Shulchan Aruch, even if it's not with your regular study. Just study one law every day. You should go through at least one law every day of your life. Under normal circumstances, you should be a, should be a fixed practice studying the Shulchan Aruch in order. A given amount each day continue until all you go through all four sections are completed and then start all over again. So that's when, spiritually speaking, that's where it funnels into the rectification of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That makes sense. What would you tell someone new to Torah on tackling the, the myriad of laws involved? Because there's, there's so much involved. Like you can go through the Shekona Rukh, but that's not even an end all because there's a lot of application of all these laws to modern life and new technology. Right, so that's a great springboard of how the whole chain works, okay? Because Moshe Rabbeinu received the Torah. He saw the real realm of truth and knew exactly what to do down here in order to make that connection, to make that rectification through the 613 mitzvot, which most people loosely translate mitzvot as commandment, but it's not that. It's tzavat, which means connection, cosmic connection connection. Tzavat also means tongs. Just like a tongs, you make a connection when you bring those two ends together. So that's really the root of mitzvah, which is a really dynamic concept when you really think about it. The Torah now becomes a technology. It's not a religion, not a culture. It's a technology for us to connect to the infinite. It's how I always teach people. So the idea here is, though, of course, Moshe Rabbeinu at Mount Sinai, he got the klalim, what we call the principles of everything. There's even a great Gomorrah where he was looking and he saw God putting the crowns on the letters. And Moshe Rabbeinu had a dialogue. He says, like, what's this for, basically? I'm just telling you in a, in a gist. What's this for? He says, oh, there's going to be a descendant who's going to be able to take these crowns and he's going to expound and make thousands and thousands of laws. Based on this line, Moshe Rabbeinu goes, what? Show me. What? So he says, okay. So he did a virtual time warp where here's Moses sitting in the back of the class, watching Rabbi Kiva, giving a, a dissertation based, you know, on the, on the, based on these crowns of the letters. And Moshe Rabbeinu is not getting it at all. He's not following. Could you believe it? Okay. So, and then finally, someone in the class raises his hand and says, where did you get this from? And the answer was, Rabbi Kiva answers and says, it's all a tradition from Moses. And as soon as Moses heard that, he got it. So Moses got the general principles. And then what happens is, as the generations go down and new things get introduced, so therefore the rabbis have to go back into those principles and navigate in terms of how does it play in terms of our daily practice. Let's look at when the electric timer was made. When the electric timer first came out, the rabbis did not permit it. Because why? A people would walk outside, walking by your house, and they'd see a light go off. And they'd go, that's an observant Jew. What are they doing shutting off a light? Because don't forget, these timers just came out. And it wasn't in the in consciousness of the populace. And so until later, 
till everybody got that there's a thing called a Shabbos timer. When they would walk in front of that house and see a light go out, they go, Shabbos timer. No problem. He's still a kosher Jew. So like, in other words, you see how the application becomes different and there's many, many factors that need to be weighed. And all of those basically come from Moses, from Sinai, that were written down in the oral law and then handed down. And then the oral law, really, it's also not clear. If you read in the Talmud, you'll see two Jews, three opinions, classic. You have many, many opinions. But, of course, it's not really decided, the law. Only a tradition of those rabbis who got it from those rabbis who got it from those rabbis who know what the law is. And it came down to when the Shulchan Aruch was first written. Actually, the Rambam, Maimonides, he was the first one to actually take from the oral law and laid it out in a way from the Talmud, lay it out in a way that you could just read all the laws that he wrote down, clear, succinct. It was pretty controversial at the time because he didn't bring sources, and they didn't like that. They liked sources. but he, So he basically wrote what's called the Mishnah Torah, about five volumes, extracting all from the Talmud, 20 volumes, 21, you know, 60-something sechdas, and then he extracted and put it into law form. Great. Now you guys got it clear because the people were losing sight of it. Okay, there was arguments at the time. Even when the Shulchan Aruch was written, there were dissenters, big rabbis who were going, no, 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 you're taking it away from people. You're taking away the fight because people have to figure it out themselves. So it sounds like there's two points that go into the application of Torah law into new situations. One is just the application of it in that new situation with maybe that new technology. And two is, like you said, is necessary fences that are necessary at certain points in time, but they may decide can be removed at later points in time, like you said, the timer on the on the lights. Yes, and some were still waiting to be removed. Big thing is musical instruments. Really, technically, I mean, the Levites played in the temple on Shabbos. Musical instruments is really technically not a problem on Shabbat. However, nobody plays a musical instrument because the rabbis made a fence. What was that fence? People get this wrong, and they think the rabbis are just a bunch of power-hungry control freaks sitting in a room. But it's not true. The rabbis care about every single soul, and they care about the rectification of humanity. So they instituted that you can't play a musical instrument because in case a string breaks, someone might fix it. I, why can't you just have the law? A string broke, so you can't fix it. Okay, and everybody, no, 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 no. There are misguided people who get different mixed messages and they could not know that clearly and therefore it could result in someone somewhere sometime in the world in some remote corner of creation fix a musical instrument and that would damage the Shekhinah. We don't want to hurt the Shekhinah, the divine presence which is our cosmic source. Is it possible they also understood our human nature that we're not always present not always in the moment, and that there's some things that we may do habitually, like playing guitar, the string breaks, and then without thinking about it. Yeah, 100%. They totally have human nature down. The rabbis were very insightful and very deep, and they understood human nature. Let's take, for example, something else. I remember my Rosh Hashiva would tell us that, you know, Torah reading 
is read on Shabbat classically, but also during the week there's two days where we read it during the week. They take out the Torah in the morning and we read three aliyahs. We invite different three people to come up, say a blessing, then they read a little portion of it. The rabbis knew exactly what a person can handle and what a person cannot handle. They knew human nature. If they would make four aliyahs or five aliyahs, forget it. No one would come to shul. So they had to make three and not four. Two and not four, right? Two shall be thy count and thy count shall be two. So they were anticipating our small attention span, our, our attention span declining over the years to where we are now. And so they set guidelines and measures and fences in order to protect the Torah and to make sure that nobody engages in self-damage by, in, by going against the Torah because that's what's called spiritual self-damage, spiritual self-destruction. So the fences are against the, own, the soul in an individual way and a general way to ensure that the Torah does not get damaged. So early on, I did read the Talmudic debate around why no poultry and dairy. And the, the discourse that I read said that they were basically putting a fence around the Torah because someone may see someone eating a chicken and cheese sandwich and think they were eating a meat and cheese and make that mistake themselves. So if they're trying to put a fence around the Torah, but I go into my kitchen, I get a kosher chicken, I make it, put in a tortilla with some cheese. Why is there an issue with that? Because I'm eating in isolation. No one's watching me. I know it's chicken and I know biblically I can mix it with dairy. So what then becomes the issue like in that situation? couple of issues there. It's interesting that you bring that up. One is, when the Torah was given to the rabbis, that means they have the code. That means they can reset the code. God gave them that authority to go ahead and set whatever code they need to. When they declared poultry to be meat, that means in the mystical realm, in all the cosmic realms, and all of the alignment of all of the dimensions... Chicken became meat, period, because it's the rabbis. When they declared it that way, it became that way, and it is that way. That's how we look at it. You could, there was, there was a story in the Gomorrah where a guy went to a, a village and they were doing cheese uh, tacos, chicken cheese tacos. Once they made that declaration and that became the consensus of the Jewish people, that became embedded in the actual reality of the object itself. The second thing is, God says, you got to listen to the rabbis. There is a positive mitzvah, it's in the book of Deuteronomy, that says, Those who teach you, meaning the Sanhedrin, when they set up the rules, you have a mitzvah to listen to them. Because they are rewriting the code. Because they, I gave them the Torah, and they have the authority, and if they make this kind of decree... It has to be followed. We follow the rabbinical injunctions with the same stringency that we give an actual Torah instruction. Because, and you don't, we don't differentiate. We know it's a rabbanan, and therefore that enables us actually in certain circumstance, certain circumstances to navigate given certain circumstances. There was a riff 
He asked the question is, why all these opinions in the Talmud? And even in the Shulchan and the Code of Jewish Law, you'll see opinions in the laws themselves. There's a Yesh Omrim, someone who says this, and some there's this, and someone says that. Why? What's going on? So he explains that it gave space for rabbis in later generations to be able to navigate certain circumstances. Like certain times you have to impose a leniency if it happened. I got a call, somebody whose mother cooked on the second day Yom Tov for him. She put on the fire and she cooked for him. And I asked the Rav at the time, and I says, well, what was the deal? Can he benefit from that? Because his mother cooked for him on second day Yom Tov. She lit the fire. Not supposed to. And so the rabbi said it was okay. It might not be all opinions. The rabbi said it was okay because the second day is only what? Rabbinic. Second day Yom Tov outside of Israel is rabbinic. Then it depends upon what food it was cooked. So anyways, he was able to do that. A rabbi can do that. They can navigate that. Because usually if you cook on Yom Tov, you cannot benefit from that food. If you cook on a Shabbos, you cannot benefit from that food. Depending upon your intentions or whatever. So... In any case, you see how they're able to navigate. But we do look at them at the same level of stringency. And this is not their opinion. There's a, there's a, a framework for how they go about making these decisions, and that framework is part of Torah itself. Is that accurate? Yes, absolutely, because you know the Talmud goes through the factors and the sources of all of these laws. Extensive work going through every factor of every single law. You have to make a little backtrack here. If you look at the written law, there's no real, anybody with any uh, intellectual honesty would see that there's no details in these laws. When it says put a frontlet between your eyes, what's a frontlet? We have no clue. Until Moses comes down and says it's a black box, it has to be square, has to be black, can't be pink, it can't be round has to have this dimensions that has to have this in it with all of its dimensions and all of its laws and there's a lot of laws in that so the idea here is that the oral law which is in the talmud is really an explanation of the written law it's not two different things because if you look at the written law there's really it's really not clear what does it mean to honor your it says honor your mother and father what does that mean i mean really come on how do you translate that into an action So thank God we have all the commentators and all of the tradition from Sinai that explain what it means to honor your mother and father. You know, you don't sit at the place where he sits. You should get up in the room. You can't contradict them. A lot of laws go into that that need to be learned. But it's all within the body of the 613. Why did God make it so complex and put so much of the responsibility of dissecting all this and going through all this intellectual rigor to figure out how this applies in the world, why did he put that responsibility on us instead of just saying, here's the manual, here's what to do, here's what to not to do, to separate the sparks and do your job at hand? And it was supposed to be like that. It wasn't supposed to be a, a schlep. When Moses hit the rock, instead of speaking to the rock, that's when the beginning of all of the machlokases happened that we see in the Talmud. In other words, you'd figure Moses got it, had it clear. He gave it to all of his students. They had it clear. Okay, well, after he passed away, they lost a lot of halachas, but they got it back by Otniel. Okay, somebody brought them back. They lost, they forgot. Like, I don't know, 3,000 halachas. Go figure. 
And what happened was, but when he hit the rock, the Tikkun Zohar brings down that then it became, it's going to be hard on the Jewish people from then on. The, so then it became, once Moses hit the rock, so then it became hard. The Jewish people then came out all the machlokases and came out bread, actually, more confusion in terms of being, and it took more sweat in order to extract what to do because of that incident. Once Moses hit the rock, the extraction of the halacha, the clarity, which was they could arrive at the conclusions became much less clear, more foggy. And then we came out, all of the arguments in the Talmud, you'll see the back and forth in the Talmud, became because of that. Listen, bottom line, we have a Muna, we have faith, we know that everything is meant to be, and it was meant to be that way. Because so, so we can sweat, so we can make the separation of good and evil, so we can arrive at the conclusion to fix the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which is what we're all striving for. And there's more ownership when you are more developing and discerning permitted from prohibitive versus just getting everything in a nice, organized. Absolutely. So you have to say it was meant to be, that we have to be, this is the Torah we have, with all of its a mass seemingly confusion. We have to work through it. There was a, a malach who came to an angel. They call it a magi, this angel, type of angel. Came to one of the leaders of the generation. His name was the Vilna Gon. And in the, you know, the genius of Vilna. And he, the magi, this angelic entity, came and says, I'm here to teach you. I'm going to give it all over to you, everything. And he sent them away. He said, no, thanks. I'm here. I want to work for it. So we're here to work for it. So the striving is the journey. The working for it is the main part, actually. So we appreciate the fact that we could sweat over it and try to make arrive at, at the conclusions, ask the rabbi. And every situation is different. Every situ- so no situation is like the same and there's because there's different factors that need to be weighed in all the time that we are not aware of or we are aware of, but that's why we need to go through what we need to go through. But in general, we see what kind of general rectification it is. And, it's like, and we can't see where these sparks are hidden in our activities. But I think I learned from you that one of the reasons we have to schlep around and travel when we do work is because God's orchestrating that to bring us to those sparks that need to be elevated. And I heard that when the Jews were in the wilderness, those 40 stops where he positioned them was because there were some sparks that needed to be pulled up from those, that location. And so that's sort of like a lot of where we end up living or moving or traveling to is sort of being orchestrated so we can scoop these up. Absolutely. If you ever invited to some remote place, Rabbi Nachman says you should go there because there's sparks for you to elevate. And you go there, you make a blessing, and therefore you elevate the sparks in that place. I think I learned that from you right before I had to go to Bismarck, North Dakota in January. And I never have been so diligent in my prayers throughout the day because I wanted to get every spark out of there. So I would never get asked back to Bismarck in January. (laughs) (laughs) 
Makes total sense. There's a great story uh, by the Baal Shem Tov and the Magid. The Magid was parting from the Baal Shem Tov one time, and he says, I'm, gonna, I'm coming back for Rosh Hashanah. I'll see you later, Rebbe. I'm going back to my, my villa, my city. And the Baal Shem Tov just said this strange kind of comment, safe, real safe travels. Like, not, not that usually, usually it's a different send-off. This was a strange send-off of like, you'll have a safe travel. Right? And then he goes, Rebbe, you don't usually say that kind of send-off. Safe travel. Bye. So what happens was, towards Rosh Hashanah time, the Magid, he had, wherever he was, he had to take a boat to get to the, his Rebbe, the Baal Shem Tov in Medjibuj. And the boat had a storm at sea. And all of a sudden, what happens? The boat broke. They had to stop off at an island. He was going to be on that island for Rosh Hashanah, this certain island somewhere. He was stuck for Rosh Hashanah, just on air of Rosh Hashanah, just a few hours just before sunset, whatever. The boat embarked. He got off the boat, rented a place, went to the mikveh, and then he sat in davening. Opened the windows right at this room, and he's davening, and he's very fervent in his davening. He's on fire. And nobody's ever seen a Jew before. And people walking by and they notice. They can't help but not noticing. What is going on? Like the prayers that this guy's involved in. And eventually it gets to the king. The king hears this and says, send for him. I want to meet this guy, this interesting individual. So they send for him and he says, okay, I'll, I'll come to the king in a few minutes. He had to finish his prayers. He finished. And then he's in front of the king. And the king has a conversation with him, very amazing about worldly things. And the king is just unbelievably impressed by this man. You were a Jew. Wow. I want you to go and bring me back 10,000 more of you to live here on my island. And the Jew says, well, it's not so easy. You know, we're all kind of scattered and kind of everybody's kind of busy. Eventually, the king says, okay, it's not going to happen. So the Baal Shem Tov finally gets back on the boat after they fix it, after Rosh Hashanah, he makes it to the Baal Shem Tov. And as soon as he sees the Baal Shem Tov, he says, thank God that you're, you had to spend Rosh Hashanah on that island. Because if you didn't, and, and your davening would suck out all the sparks, 10,000 of us would have to move there and be stuck there for, for you know, centuries. So in other words, if you have to go someplace, you go, you get the sparks, and you don't have to see them. The consciousness of knowing that they're there makes all the difference in the world. Like your South Dakota trip, did you have to go to South Dakota again? Have not been back. There you go. This was very helpful. So I always like to look at everything from a top-down approach. You know, before I go into studying Halakha, it's just so helpful to me to have a bigger picture on what it is that we're trying to do. We're trying to shift through our life, the life that God's orchestrating where we are and what we're doing and grab those those sparks to discern what is permitted, what is prohibited, and take that and elevate everything in our path. And that's who this exercise of learning halakha, following the halakha. Rabbi, I appreciate you giving me that nice general overview of the importance of this. It's going to bring a lot more passion to our learning as we pursue this together. Thank you so much. Pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.